Um, thanks for coming. This is Aesthetics of Resistance uh, slash Defense. I'm Liam Considine. I'm just going to give a kind of quick overview of um, you know, the idea behind convening this panel and a quick uh, introduction to um, the work of Jason Lobes, Mark MacArthur, and Alan Ruiz. And then I'll turn it over to them. And then hopefully we can have kind of discussion about um, you know the current conjuncture of uh, uh, art and art and politics. That's basically the idea here. So, um, so this panel was motivated by the observation that under current conditions of neoliberal retrenchment and populist backlash, the contradictions of the contemporary art system are becoming increasingly difficult to sustain. Uncertain market conditions increase the value of art as an asset class. As, collector, as collectors seek out secure investments, yet the same conditions raise rents and squeeze artists and galleries out of, out of existence. Plutocratic museum trustees and donors are empowered as public funding for the arts dries up, yet their business practices and political commitments contravene the liberal democratic values that museums purport to uphold. If, following Derrida, the work of art and the commodity haunt each other under capital, the current crisis is pushing the ghosts out of the closet as the hyper-commodification and co-optation of art increasingly undermines its value as an aesthetic object, i.e. its relative autonomy as a non-commodity. So these contradictions predate Trump's election, uh, but what was once a source of alienation and dismay for a relatively small faction of engaged artists and critics, some of whom I see, I'm happy to see in the audience today, um, and curators, <clears throat> has recently spurred campaigns against art washing and gentrification at museums and galleries. Uh, the protests led by Nan Golden at institutions funded by the opioid manufacturing Sackler Company um, or uh, Sackler Family, or the movement by decolonize this place to oust tear gas maker Warren Canders from the Whitney Museum Board of Trustees are but two local examples. And yet far less attention has been focused on how artists have responded within their work to what Nancy Fraser calls the crisis of progressive neoliberal hegemony. Um, so rather than attacking institutional structures of governance and funding head on via protests, for example, um, the artists on this panel target the material and discursive infrastructures of power that often remain hidden from view. Defending a role for art as an engaged practice of aesthetic investigation and experimentation. Um, so Keller Easterling has written that infrastructure space, quote, shapes the shared standards and ideas that control everything from technical objects to management styles. It is the secret weapon of the most powerful people in the world, precisely because it orchestrates activities that can remain unstated but are nevertheless consequential, end quote. Um, building what could be termed an infrastructural aesthetics that has gained urgency since 2016, the expanded sculptural practices discussed here materialize social relations that would rather remain concealed and defend, envision, or dream resistant communal alternatives. 
So, um, Jason Loeb's art highlights the invisible forces that shape our lives. Often, okay. Um, so, Loeb's art highlights the invisible forces that shape our lives, often pitting them against the twin yet contradictory liberal ideologies of freedom and equality. His recent work is focused on a justice system that ostensibly defends the public good while strengthening private property rights um, and inhibiting equal access to the law. His Private Matters exhibition at Essex Street Gallery focused on uses of eminent domain law to expropriate property for private developers. Video recordings highlighted, highlighted three sites seized through eminent domain in Fort Trumbull, Connecticut, Essex Crossing, and Hudson Yards in New York City. Loeb's filtered his recordings through an incongruous feedback loop of smartphones and projectors, material, materializing the image as a process of technological and social dislocation. Um, a phallus cast from New York City mud mimicked carvings by Paleolithic European nomads, humorously manifesting the compensatory drive to territorialize with towers or symbols. And I'll let Jason explain for himself more about uh, this piece. His 2018 exhibition, Stila Trial at Lodo 38, constructed, uh, construed the exhibition as courtroom where the codes and rituals of the legal system were mapped onto the gallery space. Loeb's etched stock courtroom uh, phrases in T-line legal shorthand onto polished marble slabs displayed on a long tabletop. These echoed photographs of reflections on smartphones showing the New York State Supreme Court building and the Tweed Courthouse near the gallery. Because photography is prohibited in these sites, the reflections captured artworks installed in the courthouses, such as Roy Lichtenstein's Element E from 2003, which you see here, um, or stills from films such as Anthony Mann's Side Street from 1950, in which the courthouses appear. UV-canceling clean room lighting used in manufacturing, biomedical, and photo-developing facilities cast a yellow pallor across the gallery linking juridical, technological, and aesthetic regimes of vision which art can alternately contest or legitimize. The archaic shorthand system that he used conjured the performative proclamations of ancient laws, um, such as those of the steel of Hammurabi, the Babylonian steel, for example, um, suturing them to present-day legal codes and techniques. Loeb suggests that in our supercharged spectacle culture, it is the infrastructural powers of inclusion and exclusion that are, that are actively shielded from view. So Park MacArthur uses sculpture to pose questions about care and access in the spaces in which she lives and works. Her fabricated and ready-made objects visualize access as the antinomy of structural exclusion perpetrated by privatized relations of care. Her 2014 exhibition, Ramps at Essex Gallery, uh, displayed wheelchair ramps removed from spaces frequented by the artists in New York City, 
which she then supplied with legally mandated signs reading ramp access located at Essex Street. <laughs> Corresponding blank monochromatic signs were displayed along the gallery ceiling and a URL pointed to a Wikipedia page written by MacArthur on Marta Russell, a writer and disability rights activist whose book Beyond Ramps, Disability at the End of the Social Contract from 1998, analyzes the relationship between disability, social Darwinism, and economic austerity under capitalism. I do this because I teach art history, so I can't resist blowing up things from my intro to art history class, so it's just fun for me. Summoning ancient horizontal antipodes, for example, the mortuary temple of Chepset, uh, to priapic vertical structures such as towers, MacArthur's ramps eloquently juxtaposed the material impacts of gravity with the disembodied visuality of the white cube gallery space. Her installation at the 2017 Whitney Biennial, another word for memory is life, reprised the municipal monochromes as large-scale aluminum highway signs designed in accordance with the government manual on uniform traffic control devices. These are painted in regulation Pantone 469 brown with rounded edges designed to, quote, speak to us softly yet effectively and authoritatively, end quote. Installed behind the visitor desk in the lobby and in the upstairs gallery behind Jordan Wolfson's Real Violence virtual reality piece, these mute signboards collapse the aesthetics of institutional authority and modernist painting, delimiting vision as a field of access and control. Their brown monochrome commemorated the queer communities of color displaced from the waterfront, marking the Whitney and the, and the Meatpacking District as sites where hypergentrification offers access and erasure as two sides of the same coin. And her recent Projects 195, Park MacArthur at MoMA, expands upon this research at the intersection of public and private infrastructures of property and access. She will discuss this work calls attention to the expansion of museum galleries into, an, uh, into a planned ultra-luxury tower, comparing this with her own daydream of an accessible live-work residence complete with communal spaces such as artist studios, screening rooms, and a ramped swimming pool, uh, which were represented by her modular stackable steel sculptures. So last but not least, Alan Ruiz examines the materials and spaces of globalized standardization and privatization, seeking to subvert them from within via tactics that he terms radical formalism. His Western Standards series manifests the hidden logic of architectural spaces that are scaled to the dimensions of the mass-produced materials that enable speculative real estate development. In works such as Western Standards, C2-120, standardized steel studs create visually stimulating barriers that expropriate gallery space and block physical access. His Hunter Green 1390 mimics New York City regulated fences that surround building sites and shield passersby from the construction that has been never ending since rezoning under Bloomberg. These fences deploy what was described by the buildings commissioner as a quote, soothing color and are affixed with viewing panels um, which are supposed to be for the public. 
Staged in a gallery, however, they call attention to the hidden labor of workers, so often immigrants, who supply the surplus value that feeds speculative exchange. Ruiz describes these walls as, quote, green screens on which prospective futures and changes to the surrounding urban mesh are projected, end quote. In this way, the ideology of green development is juxtaposed with the material exploitation of bodies in urban spaces. Rather than soothing or providing views for, for the public, these standardized barriers enable the virtualization of urban space by glass box structures into which developers sink excess capital. Like the Spatial Alchemy Projects, you will discuss Western standards turns neoliberal infrastructure space inside out, intervening in everyday materials that otherwise facilitate capital accumulation. So screens, domains, ramps, walls, these are the building blocks of neoliberal infrastructure space that have erupted into political discourse of late within and beyond arts institutions. All the more reason to place them at the center of alternative visions where residual spaces of aesthetic autonomy can be used as sites of intervention and resistance. So with that, I'll turn it over to Jason. Speak about his private matter show. Great. So um, Liam mentioned um, private matters. Um, there's an exhibition I produced in 2017 in New York, and I want to read a, a short s summation um, about the exhibition, but before, just kind of give a, um, a little bit more of, a, of an articulation beyond what uh, Liam uh, spoke about um, for context. It, it was an exhibition that included um, a series of, um, of of video works, there were three uh, installations, uh, video installations, and then a series of um, four sculptural works that surrounded the um, the video works. This included a set of chairs um, that were uh, linked together by zip ties, um, two and two, um, and uh, you want me to show the sides? Sure, sure. Um, and then um, the you can sit on this, and then I'll, I'll quickly explain this. Um, and then uh, the, this this uh, dirt uh, sculpture that he mentioned. So the video works were uh, filmed in three sites um, being developed at the moment: um, Essex Crossing um, and Hudson Yards. Um, and the third is uh, in New London, Connecticut. Um, all were uh, land that was seized through eminent domain. Um, which um, is a uh, eminent domain is, as probably people most most people know, it's the means by which the state would seize uh, private land for public use. Um, the eminent domain law was uh, more or less rewritten uh, in um, a case that included the New London uh, land in 2005. Um, in a case titled Kilo versus New London, where um, private land was seized and um, then gifted by the city to uh, Pfizer, um, a uh, drug company, one of the largest, to develop the land. Um, they never did 
develop the land. It ended up in, as, a, as a debacle that left most of the land empty to, the day, to this day. Um, and uh, the case was uh, resisted by the, uh, the plaintiff, uh, Sussex Kilo, but um, she was ruled against eventually where the city won um, a claim that the um, Caesar, the seizing of the land um, was essentially, um, or could be understood as a, a public use in that it would um, develop uh, or help to gentrify and develop the, the city. Um, so by proxy, this, the public would benefit. So this was a massive shift in uh, how eminent domain law would historically have been read. Historically, it would have been state expropriating for public use in a far more strict uh, use that would be public housing, let's say, or government building. So it's a watershed moment in eminent domain law, and it led to <clears throat> major uh, transformation of the city. Bloomberg and particularly Trump were both publicly um, vocal in, in their support of this particular case. And, in a lot of ways, we're living in the aftermath of it, um, just in New York, but of course, um, after many states, um, right after the, the case was won, the many cases enacted, uh, states enacted laws against um, this particular uh, ruling, and they're uh, slowly being overturned. So we're not yet even in the kind of full, let's say, um, uh, development of, of, the, of the kind of result. Um, so I surveyed all sites, um, all three sites, using um, you know video um, kind of a video technique of of, of, a, of simple fixed shots or uh, roving surveillance. Um, well, yeah, you can go to the next one. So they each of these sites were then exhibited in a um, go back one. So in each of these. Um, these video loops, which were of each site, were, were roughly 15 to 20 minutes long, just looped, shown on a um, on a phone, um, and uh, that's the phone in this uh, background, um, with the second phone over it, um, screening that film live. So you essentially had a live footage on loop, and then a live camera filming that footage. That was sent into a projector, and that projector was projected onto the wall. But as it was projected onto the wall, it, it also projected back into the foreground lens of um, the camera. So that camera in the foreground is both filming this footage and also filming um, the light um, being projected into the lens, which resulted in a, um, a disruption, um, uh, a kind of uh, glitching. Um, and convulsion of the um, the lens technology, um, which creates this asymmetrical relation between what you're looking at ultimately on the projection wall and um, the the kind of um, interruptions that periodically happen inconsistently in the film. So now I'm going to I'm going to quickly read um, a kind of summation that includes some some writing that I produced about the the works. And then I'll quickly go through the rest of the work. Um, so <clears throat> conventional left-right political affiliations may seem inadequate or blurred in the era of private partnerships, uh, public-private partnerships like CityBike and LinkedIn and LinkedIn NYC. 
These are large-scale public projects funded by private capital, publicized with what could be interpreted as quasi-socialistic exhortations. Unlock a bike, unlock New York, and the Wi-Fi that works for you. Both projects were realized through the seizure of public real estate that was, that was ostensibly restored to the public in the form of subscription service and limited use utility. They are products of a kind of dependency in which the state shields private enterprise from crisis by diverting public funds, prompting a feedback loop of dispossession. The artworks exhibited in private matters combined and this is a re repeat myself a bit, but a little bit more concisely, a digital feedback system and video footage of, of three urban sites seized through eminent domain, that is private land expropriated for public use, Fort Trumbull, Essex Crossing, and Hudson Yards. In the case of Fort Trumbull, whose fate was decided by the landmark 2005 Supreme Court ruling Kilo versus the city of New London, London the city of New London used its used its eminent domain ability to seize private property from an individual and transfer it to public developers with the specific aim of rescuing the city's stagnating economy. The plaintiff, Sasset Kilo, was ordered to give up her family's residence and land to make way for an office park that was deemed to be public benefit. The verdict held that the community's economic growth justified reclassifying public, reclassifying public development, the public development plan as a public use venture a private development uh, plan as a public use venture, in effect guiding the historical legal precedent of the public. The private, when private property becomes a barrier to economic, this is a kind of, kind of speculative thesis, a, a bit kind of maintaining a kind of notion of artistic play here um, that is at the root of the exhibition, I think. Um, when, when private property becomes a barrier to economic development, one could argue that the capitalist system kind of cannibalizes itself. Uh, the state expropriates land that it deems non-productive so that it may transfer uh, it to more profitable use um, for commercial development. Um, and so this gets into this kind of structure that I, I um, deployed in the, um, the film work um, where I repeated this kind of, um, you know, I produce a feedback loop to kind of put the, the what I see as a kind of or I'm arguing here as a kind of uh, social feedback loop or a relation between which private property is expropriated and returns to a higher, higher level of productive property uh, prompting this kind of feedback loop. So I kind of um, attempted to kind of articulate through the form, uh, formal logic of the projection uh, something that would help to kind of manage this ref the larger reflection on this kind of process. Um, um, so consequently, the Kilo ruling became an effective tool for the Bloomberg administration's rezoning of New York City. You can um, cycle through a few of these if, if you want. Um, Hudson Yards and Essex Crossing are mega projects currently under construction, made possible through eminent domain. The yards are built over a rail yard north of Chelsea and Essex Crossing over a Lower East Side trolley terminal in what was an immigrant community evicted uh, and displaced for, urban, for an urban renewal development project in the late 1960s. The site sat vacant for nearly half a century. So, if you can, yeah, so this is a, a video document of the exhibition, which kind of will, will show you um, 
the what what happens when this raw footage of each site this is Essex Crossing um, gets thrust through these feedback machines um, where they kind of you know on one side rotate that original footage but on another level um, create this dynamic of um, of, 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 of convulsion and glitching that doesn't ever repeat because it's subject to all the exterior phenomenon, the light and even people's kind of blocking um, of, the, of the works through their you know, shadows and um, in a way doesn't lead to any kind of ultimate reproducibility of the work. So also on view was a replica of a Paleolithic phallus uh, cast from dirt. So this was a little bit of another kind of artistic, like um, kind of metaphor, um, playing with these ideas of of, uh, of of kind of land development and property by telescoping kind of backwards, you know, um, through time. Um, you can show the rest of this; it's not super long. Um, so it was cast in dirt and clay gathered in New York. The function of the original object is unknown, though it's presumed to have been carved for ritualistic use by the early, by earliest nomadic peoples of what, of what we would now, um, what it was, what is now southern France. As migratory tribes, they had no loyalty to territory or land. If property is dirt in a differentiated state. The symbolic phallus is by the same token an effective differentiation, an imaginary copia. The work presents itself, the work presents the mutability of dirt, dust, and mud on which buildings are erected in a symbolic form, which as Lacan argues, no one can actually possess. Um, and so I'll, we'll quickly cycle through the, um, the rest of the works, some of which you can see in the background. This is a, a still of the projection itself. You can see the phone um, as the light is cast into the, um, the phone's lens, it actually blocks part, part of the projection itself. So you also have this kind of third element of the image, which is a kind of blocking. And then this kind of gives you a, a full um, kind of orientation around like the object and its projection. And these are kind of, um, Mo mobile units of two, I think of them, that like always kind of create, were created kind of management between the viewership, like as they would sit together, they're bound to each other, um, they're zip tied. And so there's a series of these that were kind of rolled into the, the exhibition. Yeah, thanks, I'll come back up here because I'm gonna um, play sound for the most part and the first things I'm gonna play our off an iPhone, so if it doesn't work and it's too quiet, then I'll just skip to the next, um, the next bit, bit of sound. But um, thanks so much, I'm glad to be here. And I'm gonna pick up off of two works that Liam talked about, one of which is another word for memory is life. These two brown signs um, that were included in the Whitney Biennial and then a work in the exhibition at MoMA that's called Parasites that is an audio sound piece that kind of functions in multiple ways and are coming from I guess maybe a similarity and also an inversion or a I guess as you were talking about public and private um, 
kind of some of the impulses of the two sound pieces that I'll share are thinking through the ways in which sickness and chronic illness and disability often change and kind of undo notions of public and private that we might have received from like Hannah Arendt or the ways in which participation in the public sphere are undone through the kind of individuation or the quote unquote private nature of sickness and the sociality that might happen in a kind of distributed way through those experiences. Um, and so as being included in the Whitney, Whitney Biennial, um, the artists were asked to um, record an audio piece, like a description or a, um, the artist talking about their work essentially, like what maybe what what made you make it or 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 what is it or could you give us a description um, of it as a kind of maybe like um, authentic notion of the artwork um, and through that resource I asked to make a visual description of the of the work itself so that it would have a dual function of describing some of my impulses behind making the work and functioning as an access tool um, for blind and, low vision, blind and low vision visitors to the museum. So visual description functions and is usually made through access or edu education departments in the museum um, as a way to render through language what primarily visual artworks are doing in the museum. So it would be a description of color, scale, texture, placement, intent, year, things like that. Um, so I don't have the actual file, so I'm going to play it off of the internet. I'll get to the speaker. Yeah, but I unfortunately don't have that dongle thing on this phone. I realized I sort of didn't. I'm sorry that I didn't prepare. It's just so let me check. I know, unfortunately, but I don't, I have that, like, oh, that other kind of thing. Um, so I'll try and then if it doesn't work, it, it doesn't work. My name is Mark MacArthur and I'm an artist living here in New York I know, and yeah. originally from North Carolina. Brown signs are used within the Department of Transportation and the Manual of Unified Traffic Control Devices to designate cultural institutions, national parks, and historical places. In the Whitney Museum, the same color and design of these signs is used without any of the language or wording that would typically go inside of the sign to indicate where you were going. The interest is both to allow for a description of the brown signs to literally indicate that the museum is a cultural site, as the signs would ordinarily do out in the world. And at the same time, that they also might allow for a descriptive space of historical places or what has come before the Whitney Museum in this neighborhood. The fact that the signs are blank allows for a kind of openness or multiplicity to happen there, as well as a kind of imaginative space of what might go there. Park MacArthur has done a visual description of her work for low vision users. If you'd like to hear it, please tap to continue. These signs, of which the title is called Another Word for Memory is Life, are hung together in pairs. Each sign individually is seven and a half feet 
Um, so the works are clearly dependent on both the infrastructure and the requests of the museum in that case. Um, and they both both like make and unmake or follow and also trail off or don't follow the rules of visual description. Um, and in the exhibition for, um, for MoMA, this form or the way in which it allows for a kind of multiplicity of voice to, to happen um, was extended or expanded. And um, I began to think of it while working on the, sh on the show as the primary, the, yeah, the primary space of experiencing the exhibition. So that it wasn't necessary to go to the museum. Not that it wasn't necessary, but one of the kind of primary ways of experiencing it would be through an online um, MP4, MP3 file that one could click on and listen to. Um, so I'll share a few of those. In this, in this early um, uh, uh, I guess in this early making of the visual description, um, you hear my voice and um, it's sort of ad hoc or um, yeah, it's given a, it's sort of a more casual presentation. And in this, um, through the resources of the museum at MoMA, the, um, the process was highly dependent upon people there and um, was a, a document that came through and was edited by, I guess, probably 10 people. So there's also a way in which, um, yeah, there, what am I trying to say about that? I guess in that case, again, it's sort of like the work is, is rendered through the, the labor and the efforts of multiple people and also through the kind of needs and desires um, of different departments in the world. Um, so maybe I'll click, yeah, the first one. The first one will give you, um, maybe we'll play like 20 seconds of this clip. It's a, um, the first work on paper is okay, after project Um, the document was primarily co-written with um, a visual, an artist and visual ed educator, Paula Stuffman. So you'll hear Paula's voice, and it's describing a two-dimensional work of art. And measures 9.75 times 7.25 inches, 24.8 times 18.4 centimeters on frame. It is part of the material provided to interested parties by the sales team at the 53 West 53 showroom, and it now hangs on the museum's wall inside of a thin black metal frame. At the top left, a logo set in 36-point font is the printed paper's largest graphic element, measuring 1 half inch, 1.3 centimeter in height, and 516.8 centimeter in width. The logo, which reads 53W53, is printed in gold, and the numbers and letter are created using a thin, elegant line. The numbers and letter are of equal height. Um, so what's often 
maybe kind of an ancillary or thought of as um, a part translation of a full object um, was in my mind made to be the kind of the full or the thick or the kind of um, yeah, not thinking of translation as a loss, but as sort of like a gain of of, in, of information and resource and distribution. Um, the content, some sort of sharing like how the form works. Um, the content, again, was a sort of um, questioning and thinking through this the expansion of the museum um, alongside its current home and the erection of this um, expansion and a tower that will house um, apartment buildings on top. So the last and final audio description stock I'll play is a description of the sales room of the um, apartment buildings that are being sold as part of um, it's a separate project but with, contained within the same building. Um, so you'll hear maybe a little bit more of uh, a sort of it's, uh, yeah, like you'll hear lots of kind of different voices arrive through the form itself. And then I'll pass it off to Alan after the end of it. It's about, I want to say maybe like four of them. The next group of models is located off site in an office rented by Corcoran Sunshine Marketing Group at 745 Fifth Avenue. The models here represent a luxury residential tower, which will house a portion of the museum's expansion inside its lower levels. The residential apartment complex is designed by Etelier Jean Nouvel and is a separate construction project. It is not represented in the Diller Scofidio plus Renfrew model at MoMA. The Nouvelle Tower is known as its address, 53 West 53rd. Entering the corporate sales office building, the expansive lobby at number 745 echoes with sounds bouncing off its polished stone and high ceilings. Behind the front desk, elevators rising into the double digits flank the left and right sides of a wide hallway. Upon exiting the elevator on the sixth floor, a right turn leads to heavy walnut wood double doors that open onto a hushed reception area. Inside, Another set of walnut doors opens onto a large carpeted room housing architectural models. Two sales agents are present to answer questions about 53 West 53rd. Every movement, whether by wheel, foot, or vacuum cleaner, registers on the room's plush beige carpet. Each architectural model represents different sections of the 53 West 53rd residential skyscraper. The residence's lobby, indoor gym, and wine tasting and storage rooms, among other areas, are elaborated as plastic, wood, paper, and stone miniature displays. Panes of clear plexiglass cut off every tiny interior from touch. Amid this array of sectional models stands a 12-foot, 3.6 meters tall rendering of the 53 West 53rd building in full. Lit from inside, this object stands alone on a low, dark wooden plinth. A grid of flat screen monitors on one of the room's large walls simulates views 
that might be seen were you to be inside 53 West 53rd looking out. Imagine floating among the Manhattan skyline or viewing Central Park in its entirety from above. On the occasion of the topping off of the 53 West 53rd Tower, Martino Stierley, MoMA's Philip Johnson Chief Curator of Architecture and Design, spontaneously compared this view to being on top of the world via his private Instagram. While the building follows the design of Nouvelle, the interior spaces at 53 West 53rd were planned by architect Terry Despont. The showroom's life-size model rooms intend to provide the experience of moving through an actual apartment. One room features a large, unused kitchen with white appliances and matching white stone countertops surrounding an immobile island platform. Behind another set of heavy wooden doors is a fully furnished, carpeted bedroom with backlit windows that feels as if it's floating inside of a translucent cloud. A king-size bed with white and cream-colored sheets, blankets, and pillows is positioned against the room's longest wall. On either side of the bed, a sliding door leads to a large bathroom with multiple sinks and mirrors, an enclosed glass shower, a large tub, and a small separate room with a toilet and a bidet inside. The next descriptions are of two framed works of art on view in Park MacArthur's exhibition on the fourth floor at MoMA. If you wish to hear about them, enter 341 or moma.org A341 on your phone. Okay, hi. Uh, like still having echoes of being inside of like the early childhood trauma being inside of this, this classroom. So anyway, it's really nice to be here and to be on this panel with uh, three people who I admire um, deeply. Um, so as Lee mentioned, I'm going to talk a little bit about a project of mine that's currently uh, in progress. Uh, it's, not, it's not a completed work, but I also want to highlight a few historical precedents and also some past projects maybe is giving a, a bit of context. But I'm going to read a paper. Um, so, uh, under our current moment of resurgent authoritarianism, extra-state violence, new enclosures, and neoliberal experience economies, certain atmospheric conditions within the global city may deserve attention. What is the spatial matrix in which these ideologies, half-truths, and glittering buildings rest upon? Shifting our attention from figure to atmospheric ground, we might consider the way certain effervescence and effervescent uh, elements, such as light and air, have joined physical matter as commodified resources within the ongoing privatization of the urban commons. And in my work, I'm looking at the way these kind of seemingly benign, yet um, often highly politicized spatial ingredients from architectural standards, formal partitions, repeatable infrastructures of the globalized built environment often carry the potential for social critique and subversive action, constituting what I've called a kind of radical formalism. And a question I often ask myself is, is how do I frame what's already there? Um, and rather than rehearsing the binary of doer and done to, a kind of familiar narrative that often results in the same tales of you know, monolithic struggle and kind of you know, 
doer and don't you kind of narratives. I'm curious about approaching these issues from an oblique angle in order to consider what role the privileged field of art might play in engaging and transforming existing hegemonic conditions. And so unlike oppositional forms of resistance or activism, um, this strategy might be called indirect action, which is aligned with thinkers like Easterling or James C. Scott, who writes that ideological resistance can grow best when hidden from direct surveillance. And just as a seductive decoy might slowly reveal its insurgent perversity over time, indirect action may present ways of engaging existing conditions in order to reroute predicted outcomes. And this is even more pressing uh, as art and culture are more often used as incentives for exclusionary development. And so could it be possible to use symbolic value as a medium of obstruction hidden in plain sight? And so today I'm going to kind of present a few ways of maybe rehearsing those ideas. And had Pierre Bourdieu extended his axiological analysis of culture to its effects on physical place, he might have called it spatial alchemy, which is a kind of violent conversion in value that occurs through the transmutation of place into symbolic capital under urban revitalization. Forms of art and culture often help lubricate this transformation to the exclusion of an area's original inhabitants, such that spatial alchemy occurs in a growing number of monikers, such as the Guggenheim's Bilbao effect, the Highline's halo effect, London's shortage effect, or what David Harvey has called externality effects, kind of each describing the impact of aesthetic and cultural development on surrounding properties and resources within an urban system. And the total subsumption of life to the mystical forces of value results in a logic where not only land, but also elements such as water, air, and sunlight may be converted into precious commodities. So for example, air rights, a common transaction of fictitious capital, entail the seizure of an environmental commons more often practiced by real estate developers. And you know, today, air rights have become a kind of lucrative legal hack. Uh, the transfer of development rights from multiple neighboring properties can allow a single development project to grow exponentially. And so in this sense, certain buildings technically have more rights than others, creating a kind of vertical uh, politics in which some buildings have unrestricted access to daylight or leaving other parts of the city in shadows. Uh, this is uh, by the Municipal Art Society. And so access to light and proper ventilation, now generally unquestioned as rights, has historically been determined by one's class position. Following New York slum conditions best documented by Jacob Rees, who cast photographic light on interiors of destitution, the Tenement House Act of 1867 and the subsequent new law of 1901 required all New York City buildings to include outward-facing windows to allow for proper ventilation and illumination. And many years later, as part of the 1961 zoning resolution, air rights were originally implemented to control overbuilding and further prevent the occlusion of light and air. And as evidenced by the shimmering glass curtain walls of luxury towers that increasingly populate the global city, um, windows still may signify a class position. And yet, since this is a panel on aesthetics, indeed the, the window is often a recurrent site that indexes capital as well as anti-capitalist struggle. And an early form of property sunlight can be seen in the window tax of 1696, a kind of form of property taxation in Great Britain that was determined by the number of windows in a house. And so in an effort to avoid this tax, many people throughout England would board up their windows, which is of course still visible today throughout England, which as a result, of course, you know, restricted access to light and air, yielding all sorts of health consequences. 
Um, and given the early 20th century display windows, uh, instrumental role in the production of taste and conspicuous consumption, is perhaps not surprising then that the storefront window is often shattered during periods of political unrest. Throughout modern history, from Watts Rebellion to G20 protests to the inauguration of Trump and the Parisian Yellow Vest protests, the display window is a recurrent target of dissent, a kind of counter-identification with systems of oppression under late capital. E.P. Thompson identified window breaking in 18th century England as a kind of active darkness of the anonymous tradition. And for Thompson, window breaking, along with examples such as the anonymous letter of the arson or stock or outhouse, were forms of resistance made in a society where any open identified resistance to the ruling power may result in instant retaliation, loss of home, employment, tenancy, if not victimization at law. Yet more than an act of vandalism or an index of social destitution, as city planners and neoliberal social psychologists like Kelly and Wilson would suggest, the broken window may serve as a mode of indirect action against the increased privatization of the city as a kind of non-place. Right? And in another text, I kind of thought through window breaking as a kind of example of Melanie Klein's notion of projective identification. Um, but while the standardized bricks used to build the global city could be used to break its windows, not all <coughs> objects thrown with blunt force successfully demolish an intended target. Some are confronted by a resilient material, tempered and armed with impact resistance, or kind of coated in Teflon. Uh, the pageantry of protest can easily become a dress rehearsal for emergent technologies of shock absorption that withstand the force of impact, dissolving dissent in a kind of fizzy solution. Right? So how might the field of art, with all its trappings of symbolic value, actually offer other modes of indirect action? And there's a medieval saying, city air makes one free, that seems to equally apply to the pursuit of light and air and perpetual renewal of today's urban centers. The phrase stemmed from the belief that peasants who are trapped in a subservient relationship with feudalism, you know, kind of owned by the few but worked by the many, could achieve a measure of autonomy by escaping to one of the cities away from the control of landed aristocracy. So to become a citizen was usually referred to as having gained quote unquote the freedom of the city, entailing one to certain privileges in pursuing a trade. However, freedom, as David Harvey and others have observed, is a kind of relative term, right? And in this case, city air was believed to make one free at the price of personal responsibility and entrepreneurial trade, perhaps foreshadowing an all too familiar neoliberal ethos. So the transfer of air rights not only illuminates an absurd urban legal condition, but also more commonly signals the way a struggling property might seek certain measures in order to sustain itself. Um, you know, one of my favorite examples is to consider, for instance, the Manhattan cathedrals and synagogues that have attempted to sell their unused air rights in order to maintain their building, a kind of you know, ideologically complex interaction of religion and real estate. Uh, or more recently, Consider how de Blasio announced that the New York City Housing Authority would sell 80 million square feet of air rights to generate $1 billion in capital repairs for nearby developments. And so while the transfer of unused air rights might offer an immediate solution to the disrepair of public housing, does this sale of air not signal another instance of neoliberal incentivized development wherein the state offers gifts to private individuals? And so in NYCHA 2.0, the city enacts a sort of soft form of accumulation by dispossession where tenants might reserve the right to stay within their apartments in need of repair, but at the cost and interest of private development. So, you know, like, what if a more radical proposal was introduced where, you know, these NYCHA residents actually benefited economically from the sale of these air rights, kind of like divided like shares of stock? And if all that is solid indeed melts into air, then how might air be mobilized towards sculptural ends? 
To quote Diane Bauer, air is the instrument to calibrate new non-terrestrial dimensions, to strive towards a future more sublime than capitalism can afford. And while traditional forms of activism are necessary, artists may offer other political imaginaries. Spatial alchemy is an ongoing work in which I attempt to lease air rights from various properties at $1 per month, radically below their real estate value. So leasing air from property B here um, technically prevents them from leasing or selling their air rights to properties A or C during the duration of this lease, thereby effectively placing a kind of uh, obstruction on surrounding development. And so I kind of like to think of this as like a heavy object that's placed on, side of, on top of the property. And so we can imagine a kind of parcel and field of these um, air rights kind of scattered throughout the city, almost kind of like a, a massive kind of land art work. Um, and while this certainly might not terminate such forms of speculation, it might present a way to slow it down through other means. And learning from the arts of improv politics, such as drag, spatial alchemy is a work that offers my value as an artist to a developer in exchange of their air rights. And so here the artwork as legal spatial intervention is leveraged to new heights with dual identities. It's both a legal obstruction and an artwork. And it's not simply a work about those structures, but it's enacted inside of them. Um, it rehearses ways of engaging artistic practices, covert strategy, provoking an interrogation of the field itself. And it asks how art might be produced in order to mobilize art against itself as art, which is also to say symbolic value against itself as symbolic value. 